Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump's meeting with North Korea's Kim Jong-un looks a little shaky. We'll assess the tactics of the North and the U.S. People in Iraq express their discontent in parliamentary elections. I'll talk with a reporter who covered the vote. And film contributor Milos Stalik talks with Oscar-winning director Sebastian Lilio about his new film, Disobedience. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Expectations have been sky high for the U.S. North Korea talks. Do you deserve the Nobel Prize, do you think? Everyone thinks so, but I would never say it. <laughs> That's very nice, thank you. That's very nice. Nobel. <laughs> 18 House Republicans signed on to a letter pushing for President Trump to be considered for next year's Nobel Peace Prize, including Indiana's Luke Messer. The only reason that the evil dictator from North Korea is coming to the table is because this president has stared him down. And as peace comes to the Korean Peninsula, I do believe President Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think he's playing. No, I don't think he's playing. And, and you know, it's never gone like this. It's never gone this far. I don't think it's ever had this enthusiasm. And the United States has been played beautifully like like a fiddle, uh, because you had a different kind of a leader. We're not going to be played, okay? That's President Trump and some of the sky-high expectations for the U.S.-North Korea talks. We're going to discuss what's happened with Philip Yoon. He's been in hundreds of hours of negotiations with North Korea. He is executive director of the Plowshares Fund and was with the Clinton administration. Thanks for joining us, Philip. Hi. Good uh, Good afternoon. We had such gigantic expectations building up, all this Nobel Prize talk, um, all of the conversations that were happening was that we're in a new realm with negotiations with North Korea. Does what is happening now surprise you? Uh, no, not really. I, I think uh, there's always hope that um, we'll, we'll, this is going, was going to move very quickly and in the way that it has. But uh, right now, um, this is sort of par for the course. I mean, I again, I've been involved in these negotiations and negotiations, particularly at this high level, never is a straight line. You, you're always going to expect some kind of bumps in the road. And this was it. Um, I think we've been a victim to sort of high expectations ourselves. And so now uh, the real negotiations actually begin. And so I think uh, with North Korea, the, 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 the message is never get too high, never get too low. Um, hope for the best. And you kind of expect the expect the worst, quite frankly, and then try to move forward. And I think that's what we're trying to do. I think that's the message the administration is trying to give right now in face of the latest uh, uh, announcements from North Korea. Uh, On Tuesday, they talked about the U.S.-South Korea military drills. 
Uh, were these things really a surprise to the U.S. or to, to North Korea? Did, didn't they talk about whether or not these things were straightened out? Well, that's my understanding. And again, what we heard was that the South Korea, the North Koreans had told the South Koreans that they expected the military exercises that, that were already scheduled to, to move ahead. Uh, what's not clear is exactly what their understanding was related to that. And one of the things that you have to also remember is that the North-South historic summit that happened between Moon Jae-in and uh, Kim Jong-un, there was a declaration, the Pyongyang Declaration, that said that they would start from immediately moving forward to uh, stop uh, escalations and tent, reduce tensions on land, sea, and air. And so we have these, this exercise called Max Thunder, which involves 100-some military airplanes, some of which involve B-52s, which have a special uh, meaning to the North Koreans. They actually really dislike them. And so here is an opportunity, not clear whether they thought that that was going to be uh, part of it or not. Um, one of the interesting things about this is that the United States, it's my understanding, is considering taking those off the table and those will no longer be part of the exercises. So in certain ways, uh, you can look at this as pure tactics, um, North Korean trying to squeeze out more. Uh, this could be a genuine problem for them, uh, given what their expectations were. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, but the only way we're going to figure that out is continue the conversation with North Korea, not cut them off. Well, was it tactics by the U.S. and South Korea to have this military exercise? If you sign a document that says no no confrontations on land, sea, and air, and then you start flying the B-52s, you're, you're doing the provocation. Well, I think that's one of the arguments that the North Koreans are saying. But from our standpoint, we were very clear that this is something that we needed to do for operational security. We've, we've, we, we delayed them a significant amount um, in, uh, at the request of South Korea because of the Olympics and something that we were um, able to do. And we, sort of, we did actually change the nature of the exercises, my understanding, as well as an accommodation. So we've done that. Again, it's not clear exactly if this is really purely tactics on the part of North North Koreans or not. And, uh, but, you know, my, my sense is that uh, when they do something, it's always to see if there's something more on the table that they can get. And as I said, this is really when the real negotiations are starting right now. You're seeing that. Um, it's interesting that it's being done publicly. But uh, this is uh, in, the, in the few weeks to the lead up to this supposed summit. Um, this is where uh, things are going to get really tough. I'm talking with Philip Yoon. He was a negotiator with North Korea during the Clinton administration and is now executive director at the Plowshares Fund. I'll be talking in a few minutes with a reporter who covered the elections in Iraq. I wanted to get back to that B-52 thing. What is it about B-52s that North Korea doesn't like? Well, what you have to realize is that North Korea was completely leveled during the Korean War, and it was through mainly bombing runs that this occurred. And so what happens is that the B-52s represent that kind of devastation. They're, they looked at as offensive. We also have to realize that the B-52s are nuclear weapons capable. And so this is something else they are looking at. And every year when we have these military exercises during the, during the winter time, um, this is something they say that if the United States is going to over uh, – uh, do a preemptive strike or attack North Korea, this is the time that it's going to happen. The other thing that you have to realize is that during the era, the time of high tensions uh, over a year ago, uh, from 
May, I think it was from May to early August, there were 11 to 12 bombing runs now from Guam. And that's why Guam, you've heard heard that over, uh, I think it was last year, the threats to Guam. Uh, the, the B-1B bombers and others were doing flights from Guam going straight towards the Korean peninsula and then veering off um, at the last second. So this is something that the North Koreans have been very clear that they dislike, they look at it as threatening. And so that's why uh, this whole... Um, uh, I think that's what they're saying in terms of this particular exercise Max Thunder is so threatening to them. I want to ask a couple questions about the Iran nuclear deal and how it is a thought about in North Korea. It could be interpreted many different ways, I imagine. Yeah. How, how do you think the North Koreans are taking it? Well, it's it's unclear. I, I think the way you look at it is that, um, you know, the North Koreans uh, – you know, the, first of all, I think it's really unfortunate that that we've pulled out of the, the Iran deal. It was working by uh, by you know, in the international community and the International Atomic Energy Commission said Iran was complying with this, have done so for three and a half years, um, and we don't have a plan B. Once that thing is gone, North, uh, Iran can do what it wants to do, and it was the most um, you know demanding, intense uh, nonproliferation agreement ever signed. That being said, when Donald Trump specifically announced the withdrawal and essentially a violation of the agreement of that uh, Iran agreement, um, he specifically drew a link to North Korea. And it was sort of saying, I want to tell you I mean what I say. And so this is connected to sort of the threats that occurred and the bombast that happened uh, last uh, over the winter time. And so he's trying to say, you know, don't, don't, I'm not bluffing. That's what he's trying to say. Um, you know, and maybe that works for the short term, but ultimately, the other way it cuts is that why would North Korea enter into an agreement in which the United States willy nilly decides to pull out? So we're going to have to see where this where this all goes. I, I have a feeling that the North Koreans have already baked this into their calculus, and so that's where uh, what makes it harder is this whole notion of denuclearization, and that's where that is the key issue uh, for both countries. What does denuclearization mean and the timing of it? North Korea wants it to happen a little bit later, um, and, and the United States wants it to happen as soon as possible. Why doesn't North Korea look at the Iran deal and say, well, denuclearization to the United States means more than just the most intrusive inspections ever. It means uh, losing your missiles, losing all sorts of added things. They want more than denuclearization. They want complete and total capitulation in these things. Well, well, that's exactly what the North Koreans are saying. I remember when I was in, in negotiations with them uh, during the early 1990s, they would always cite, uh, was it uh, Saddam Hussein, Milos, uh, uh, Iraq? They would cite um, Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, and, and Gaddafi. And they were saying, basically, you want us to completely disarm and trust you. Um, they use very colorful language. And so, in a sense, they said, you want us to pull our pants down and trust you. Um, and that's kind of what, in certain ways, you can see this most recent announcement by uh, the vice foreign, first vice foreign minister, Kim Gae-gwan of North Korea, saying to John Bolton, um, you're telling us you want us to completely disarm first and then go forward. Um, this was a marker in the uh, – uh, this was a, a very hard stake put in the ground to say this is not what we are, we are talking about and um, you, need, you need to listen to us. 
And John Bolton uh, went right at the Libya model, and here is a clip of John Bolton giving his thoughts on what should happen here. This nuclear program is further along than any past administration has encountered. So well, because of the mistakes of 25 years of past administrations. It's, but is it a requirement that Kim Jong-un agree to give away those weapons before uh, you give any kind of concession? I think that's right. I think we're looking at the Libya model of 2003-2004. We're also looking at what North Korea itself has committed to previously. So the, the Libya model thing really seems to have rankled North Korea. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because what happens and, you know, John Bolton is not (laughs) you can say many things about John Bolton, but he's very smart. And I have to believe he knew what he was saying when he used the Libyan model. Yes, the North Koreans hate it. It's not because they hate it for a couple of reasons. One is that they view this as Libya completely trusting and disarming as a basis uh, and then relying on the United States. The other thing that they also realize is that uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, basically, uh, you know, was overthrown. And I think the argument is from the North Korean perspective, and this is something that they've said to us and I've heard, is that if if Gaddafi had had nuclear weapons, he'll, he would still be in power. So this is what rankles the North Koreans. And it's this, again, this whole notion of uh, what seems to be John Bolton saying that uh, we want you to disarm first completely, and then we will give you the benefits that uh, what Secretary Pompeo has been talking about most recently over the last week. The Trump administration has really stood traditional negotiations with North Korea on their head and gone right to a meeting at the top. Uh, Are you concerned that that is still, you know, it seems to be getting results right now, but could it fall on its face? A lot of people say that uh, there is not a deep bench on North Korea right now in the State Department and in negotiating teams. How do you see this working out? Well, first, let me just say that there are people at the State Department who know North Korea and know North Korea very well. Um, One of the things that is not clear is how many have had, um, you know, clear amount of negotiating time with them at at relatively high levels. That being said, I've always been a person there's got to be, you know, with Donald Trump, there's high risk and there's high gain. Um, And I've always said that uh, you have to have in order to move with North Korea, you have to have. Um, buy-in and commitment from the top on both sides. And so here, I I think the notion of a summit and holding a summit, which was something that uh, was considered in 2000, in the year 2000, when when I was in the administration, Um, Madeleine Albright met with uh, Kim Jong-il's father, Uh, with the hope and possibility that there would be a meeting with President Clinton somewhat later on. I think that's the model that we have to use where you show presidential commitment to whatever process is moving forward. Um, What's missing here is sort of the buildup, is the the preparation that goes into something like this. Um, I am sure that people are working around the clock right now to figure out how and what they're going to be doing uh, and what they're going to propose. I think realistically the best we can hope is that, uh, at least my hope, is that they come to an agreement on a process um, and to continue talking um, with some general principles moving forward. Um, I don't think North Korea is going to agree to give up these weapons anytime soon, and we've got to figure out then how, uh, how, how big the gap is and how to bridge it. 
Philip Yoon was a negotiator with North Korea during the Clinton administration, and he is now executive director and COO of the Plowshares Fund. Thanks a lot for joining us, Philip Yoon. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the surprising results of Iraq's elections. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Iraq's electorate showed an inclination for something different in recent elections. It was reflected in the voter turnout and in the party that topped the polls. With me is the BBC's Rami Rahayam. He covered the election in Baghdad. Nice to talk with you. Hello. Nice to be on the show. I wonder if we could talk for a second about voter discontent in Iraq. It seems like it was pretty serious, and they had a lot of issues running up into the election. What was going on? Well, Iraq is fresh out of a war that lasted four years against the so-called Islamic State group, and the war against the so-called Islamic State group basically grew out of Uh, the U.S. invasion in 2003 and the events that came after the U.S. invasion. And, of course, it merged with the Syrian crisis. Um, So since 2003, there hasn't been much rest from wars. And, of course, even before 2003, uh, Iraq wasn't in an ideal situation. It was basically under sanctions. So it's been one tragedy after another for decades and then one war after another since the 2003 invasion that was led by the Americans. And the final straw was that uh, war that began in 2014 when so-called Islamic State group invaded large parts of Iraq, especially northern and central Iraq. So we're talking mass displacement. Uh, We're talking a lot of corruption uh, within the system. We're talking a very rich country that doesn't seem to be able to uh, provide the basic needs of its citizens. So a lot, a lot of uh, discontent, really. It's difficult to know where to start. Well, it seems like the electorate, there was a boycott movement for the election. Instead of being in in a mood to kind of fix things, a lot of people were just f- so frustrated with the political parties that they wanted to boycott. Yes, and it's probably not just frustration with political parties, although there is certainly a huge element of that, but possibly also frustration with the system itself. It's kind of a unique kind of democracy, if you can call it democracy. Some people call it consensus democracy. And basically, after the elections, everybody is in government. So you just take a look at all of the blocks and the process of coalition forming begins. And each block gains a share of government in proportion to its share of the vote or its share of seats in parliament. Now, on one hand, it might be a good thing for a country coming out of civil war to have all blocs represented in the government because then nobody says that an entire ethnicity or an entire sect 
or an entire religion is basically out of government. But the problem with that is that you don't have an opposition facing a government where the opposition holds the government to account. Instead, you have everybody with a slice of government and all the ministries trading blame for different problems in the country, but nobody is really in the opposition and everybody is has at least one leg in the government. Now, that system has governed Iraq since 2005, at least, and uh, it's not working, uh, obviously. Not all of Iraq's problems are caused by that system, but there is a lot of discontent with this basically spectacle of all these different parties accusing each other of being corrupt while all of them are in government and nobody is holding anyone to account. So the voter turnout has gone from 80 in one election to 60 the next election to 44 this election. I think the highest turnout was in 2005. In 2014, when the last election was held, I believe, yes, it was 60%. So that's gone down from 60 to about 44%, according to Iraq's Electoral Commission. Well, you raise the question, do we have a democracy here? Do we have a representative political entity? Well, um, we have unpredictable elections, but they're only unpredictable up to a point because with the system they have, of course, it's a system of proportional representation. Everybody knew ahead of time this time that because of the fractures within all of the coalitions, that not one list will be able to gather enough votes to have an absolute majority in parliament. So there was no doubt in anybody's mind that whoever is going to be prime minister is going to be prime minister after a process that begins following the elections of coalition building. So different coalitions that were competing in the elections will have to get together and see who can form a block with an absolute majority in parliament in order to uh, get somebody to the position of prime minister. So that was known ahead of time. But then again, nobody really knew which bloc is going to get the most number of votes. Uh, Nobody knows also where the coalition building process is going to go. So in a sense, you have a feeling that power might change hands and it might do so uh, in a way that is unpredictable and that is to a certain extent based on how people vote. I'm talking with the BBC's Rami Rahayam, and we're discussing the results of Iraq's recent election. Film contributor Milo Stalik will be up in just a moment. I wanted to ask a question about the leading vote-getter in this election. Uh, Muqtada al-Sadr's party is the leading vote-getter. He's somebody who fought the Americans uh, during the occupation. He's become a staunch nationalist and leading anti-corruption campaigns in, in the country. Is this something that has really appealed to voters, and uh, were you surprised by this result? Well, bear in mind, this is not the first time he gets a lot of votes. Perhaps people will will analyze the figures more comprehensively once the final results are out. But in previous elections, he has gained a similar number of votes. It's not like his support has just jumped out of proportion. What happened was that many less people went to the polls, and it seems that other blocs or other coalitions lost more because of that than he did, perhaps because his base of support is more loyal 
the man is known to have a certain level of support. And bear in mind also that this time he allied himself with the Communist Party, the Iraqi Communist Party, as well as other secular independent candidates. Although, of course, we know that more of the mass support for this bloc comes from his support base than from the Iraqi Communist Party, which used to be a formidable force decades ago, uh, but no longer. Perhaps he benefited from two things, the fact that he took part in many of these anti-corruption protests a couple of years ago, and also the fact that other blocs lost because of the low turnout. He said that he, McTrand Outsider says that he's going to go out and try to form a coalition that will really create change in Iraqi institutions and the government. Can he do something and make any change there? Well, we shouldn't overestimate how much power he has. Let's not forget. Yes, he came in first, but with the proportional electoral law uh, that governs the Iraqi elections, that doesn't mean much. So he's got about, according to estimates, we don't have the official full results yet. We're talking about 55 seats for his bloc. Next comes uh, the bloc of the prime minister with 51 seats. And then after that, uh, another bloc with 50 seats. So we're not talking a huge difference. And also, 55 is very far from the absolute majority needed to have a command of parliament. So whether it's Muqtada Sadr or anyone else, uh, they will have to form coalitions before they can get their person, whoever it's going to be, to the position of prime minister. And there's no guarantee that uh, Muqtada Sadr's bloc is going to be one of the blocs that form the government. It could be that they fail in their coalition building process and somebody else forms the government. And even if they do form the government, whatever they want to do with it is going to depend on consensus between them and their partners in the government. So I would be very careful about thinking that any bloc has too much power within the system. I noticed that there were representatives from both Iran and the United States in Baghdad after the election results. And in previous elections, political parties have gone to Iran to negotiate the end result. Who's going to have influence on what kind of government is formed? Has that changed at all? Both of them and no. Uh, to give you a very short and simple answer, uh, both Iran and America have influence in Iraq. And interestingly, uh, it's not always a zero-sum game between them. It's not just Iran has influence at Washington's expense and vice versa. Uh, there is competition between these two powers. There's no doubt about that. And that is reflected in certain things inside Iraq. But the more interesting aspect is the coordination, uh, whether direct or indirect that goes into the American-Iranian relationship in Iraq, which isn't really often spoken about because both sides have a PR, uh, public relations need to downplay the, the coordination. And also because, to be honest, you know, a lot of media tend to go towards the simple narrative uh, of confrontation between these two powers and neglect the more difficult, mysterious uh, aspect of their relationship, which is the coordination that goes into their relationship specifically in Iraq. And also it shapes the position of Iraqi prime minister. That position, the person who holds that office, needs to have a good relationship with both powers. What kind of things are you talking about where Iran and the United States get along and collaborate? Well, during the past four years, uh, in the war against the uh, so-called Islamic State group, 
basically, if you look at that war and you look at what each part and the media surrounding uh, each side was saying, and then you look at what was happening, you see a remarkable disconnect uh, between media often describing a rivalry, a race between the two powers on one side. And on the other, what you see is a, a very complementary process where the Americans basically provided some technical advice, air power, precision strikes, many things that the Iranians didn't have the capacity to provide, whereas the Iranians were much more active on the ground, providing both advice as well as coordination between certain groups which are close to them, uh, as well as support to certain ideologically driven groups that were fighting uh, the so-called Islamic State group. And you can see many battles from 2014 until Iraq regained uh, all of its territory from the group, Uh, where that coordination appears to have been essential for victory against that group. I'm talking with the BBC's Rami Rahim, and we're talking about the election results in Iraq. Film contributor Milos Stalik will be up in just a moment. Did you end up talking to voters and getting some ideas about what kind of things were important to them? When, When we went to the camps for the internally displaced, Most people said, whatever we do, we're not going to vote for the same old people uh, because they got us here. That was the feeling that we got from these camps. Although they didn't trust that any new person is going to solve their problems, of course, the displaced uh, of Iraq, 6 million at the peak of the war, 6 million people who were displaced at the peak of this last war, Perhaps over 3 million have returned, but we are still talking about a very large number of people still displaced, and even those who have returned have often returned to areas that were partly or even fully destroyed uh, by the war. So the biggest challenge for the new government and for the new parliament is going to be reconstruction and security in these areas. As for the rest of the population, corruption and services uh, are the things that are on their minds, and there's a lot of disillusionment with the current political class. What was the displacement camp like that you were in? Well, there are camps uh, scattered all over, but especially in the north. And there are also informal settlements. And there are also urban refugees, people who don't end up in camps, uh, but in different parts of the cities where they find themselves. The last one we went to was uh, just a pretty well-organized camp uh, in the uh, Kurdish city of uh, Erbil or on the outskirts of Erbil. People there are doing well in terms of their basic material needs. They were thankful and grateful for that. Uh, But, of course, they want to return home. And many of them, we spoke to them, they didn't feel that the security situation is good enough for them to return. And also the state of services in the places where they came from, they don't feel it's good enough for them to go. It's not livable. Nobody wants to remain a refugee, even if their basic needs are met. The BBC's Rami Rahayam covered the elections in Iraq. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking with us about what you saw. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik from Facets. He'll interview another one of the world's great filmmakers and talk with Sebastian Lilio, who won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar for A Fantastic Woman. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We'll check in tomorrow at the Cannes International Film Festival with our film contributor Milos Dalek from Facets. Before Milos left for Cannes, he interviewed another one of the world's great filmmakers for us. Sebastian Lilio won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar for A Fantastic Woman. Lilio's new film in theaters now that he wrote and directed is Disobedience. Okay, so this is a very special moment for you because you just came off winning the Oscar for Fantastic Women, and now you have a new film, Disobedience, which in some ways is very similar in some thematic ideas as Fantastic Women, but in other ways very different. So how did this project come about? Well, I wrote Fantastic Woman, and then I wrote, uh, right after that, Disobedience, um, invited by Rachel Weisz, mm-hmm. uh, who had the option for of mm-hmm. the novel. Mm-hmm. So... After that, I shot both films back to back. So now that's why it seems like I've been working a lot, but it's more of an anomaly, you know? And you knew the novel before or this came to you through Rachel, then you read the novel and... Yes, no, I had no idea. I was at that time receiving for the first time several offers to direct in English. And I was like reading a lot of projects and I wasn't really connecting with anything until one of the producers of the film, Frida Torres Blanco, came to me and told me about the general idea of the story uh, of this novel called Disobedience, written by Naomi Alderman. And I, I loved it. And I, and I loved the fact that uh, Rachel Weisz was attached and was going to play one of the main roles. And we should say that this is set in an Orthodox Jewish community yes. in North London. And it's kind of a triangular situation, right? Because it is. Because there's Ronit, from starts in New York. She's a photographer. Mm-hmm. And she goes back to London for the death of her father. Yes. And then she meets this childhood friend uh-huh. uh, who turns out to be more than a friend <laughs> at one point. Yeah. Uh, who is now married to an upcoming member of the community. Exactly. So what themes interested you in this? Well, I guess, you know, the tension between duty and desire and, and then the tension between uh, individual freedom and what the community needs. I guess I'm attracted to that kind of um, problematics and I, I really love characters when they are somehow forced towards... Um, evolutionary crossroads. Uh, So they have to make some decisions. They are facing dilemmas and they have to decide because they are under an important amount of pressure. We get to see um, what they are really made of. So the film starts really rather slowly and I think that's kind of wonderful because it takes its time and we really gradually get to know the situation because it's not introduced to us in any kind of a dramatic form. Really, we're following Ronit as she's meeting the people which whom we gradually learn more and more about more and more deeply. So exactly. it was an interesting approach, I thought. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, I like that about the structure. You know, it's like a baroque structure. You start with one narrative line, which is Ronit, Rachel Weisz character, and she's the one that brings us into that unknown world, which is a very secretive world. Not even Londoners know well. And then we slowly understand the dynamics between the characters, how that community behaves and what they believe in. And then slowly the film adds more narrative lines. And then Rachel McAdams' character becomes another narrative line, and then Alessandro Nivola's character becomes a narrative line as well. So they connect 
they coexist, they go by themselves. So it's kind of like a, like a back uh, music piece, if you want. I mean, saving all the distances <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, there's nothing beyond that. But So did you know much? I mean, I've seen a fair amount of Israeli films that are set in the Orthodox communities, but... Did you know much about uh, no, author? No. So how did you figure this out? Well, um, probably I, w I was attracted to this because it was so unknown, you know, and so mysterious. And uh, I am not Jewish and I am not British. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I like to understand or think of cinema as a um, device to connect and to travel and to create kind of like a bridge towards unknown territories. And, well, and but you can't just show up in a London Jewish community, Orthodox yeah, community and no. say, hey, here I am. No, I no, want no, to no. figure out what you do or course, how you are. Of course, no. So. Yeah. No, I, I, well, we had a lot of help from the writer of the novel, uh, Naomi Alderman. She belongs to that community and grew up there. And then she somehow wrote her way out of the community with this novel. And then during the writing process, the script was co-written with a British playwright and, and scriptwriter called um, Re Rebecca Lenkiewicz. We had probably four consultants. So we were um, consulting them all the time because we wanted to get the cultural texture right. You know, and to there's so many details and nuances and it's such a complex and rich world that uh, I have to say it was a bit uh, paralyzing at the beginning. I thought that the character of Esty, who is the friend of Ronit and who is now married to somebody that Ronit also knew because mm -hmm. they're all part of the community, is actually kind of an interesting character because she's religious, she's devout, she's married, she follows all the rules of mm -hmm. her husband and of the community. And at the same time, she's a teacher, she's a good teacher, she takes that very seriously. And at the same time, something is burning. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel Weiss' character and, and Rachel McCallum's character, Ronit and Esty, were each other's first love. Right. And somehow Rachel Weiss escaped. And by doing that, she lost contact with her origins. Mm -hmm. um, but she obtained her individual freedom. And Esty, Rachel McCallum's character, stayed and got married. But she repressed herself. So she's somehow disconnected uh, to who she really is. And in this um, few days of funeral rituals and, and while the throne is empty, you know, they just can't help it. And it happens again. But this time they are adults. So the consequences are, are bigger. So when this happens, uh, it's like the entire community, it's somehow in danger because the husband of Rachel McCallum's mm -hmm. character is going to be the, the successor of the dead rabbi. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Sebastian Lelio, whose new film is called Disobedience. It's interesting that you speak about the community because in a way the community is kind of a character. And mm -hmm. even though each of the characters here is threatened and is fragile, the community too is fragile. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It was important for us to try to avoid making the community the antagonistic force. That would have been probably uh, too simplistic. For me, the main antagonistic forces are coming from within the three characters themselves. They are the main obstacle to get into the next level, so to say. And you know, every community has its lights and shadows and its complexities. Uh, the same as individuals. So it was important to capture, to try to capture uh, that complexity and, and, and avoid making them 
the villains. People have said about you that at least in your last, I don't know, your first four films at all. I've never seen any of them. I would like to actually, (laughs) (laughs) not going backwards. (laughs) But but in the last three films, Gloria, Fantastic Women, and Disobedience, all characters are women. And you've Mm -hmm. been told that you have a particular touch with Hmm. female characters and with understanding them. Is that true? I mean, how, why? (laughs) Well, people people talk, you know, and they they say things. No, I mean, I knew what I was doing. Uh, Of course, to make a film, you have to think a lot and it's not something spontaneous. But there was a part of me that really hadn't connected the dots yet. I mean, when we showed Disobedience for the first time in Toronto Film Festival a few months ago, I was asked that question. What about this trilogy about women that you had just made? And I was like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? But yeah, I have to face it. I mean, I have been very moved by these stories, by the idea of um, taking these characters that are somehow on the fringes of society or narratives, if you want, and um, put them in the absolute center and create these hopefully complex portraits of them make them go through the entire emotional spectrum, see them fall and stand up again. There's something about that gesture that really moves me. So I've been busy with that. (laughs) Well, in a way, you could say that cinema has really, I mean, there's as many films about women as there are in cinema, which is in the many, many thousands. Mm -hmm. But you could also make a case in some ways of saying that many of the films, even when they are about women, are written from very much from a male point of view, not from the standpoint of the character and not giving women the full emotional, intellectual, moral, ethical right. issues. You know, it's in, mm-hmm. a way, in a way, it's very, I don't know, not typecast, but I mean, put into a very oversimplified in a way. Yeah, of course. I mean, that happens. It's not that I made this into a, like, a kind of like a personal mission. It's something that just happened, you know. But I am not, uh, in the case of Gloria, for example, the main character is a 58 years old woman. I am not that. 58, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a woman, not 58, but, I, but I, I was so intrigued and interested in them. And I think in that case, my mother generation and, and her friends played a big role. Uh, in the case of A Fantastic Woman, the story is centered around a um, 28 years old transgender woman. Again, it's the same. You know, I was very curious to learn and to get rid of my ignorance and try to create um, a complex portrait of that existence. And in the case of disobedience, it's even, even more extreme because it's about two women. And of course, there is Dovid, which is the third point of the triangle. But it's happening in a, in a world that I didn't have any idea about. You know, like the Jewish Orthodox community of a neighborhood in the north of London. So it's hyper-specific. And um, I guess that's what's so exciting (laughs) because there is a a world that is complex and, and, and rich and that exists. And you can make use of that texture and use it as an asset. So, you know, I'm going to say something nasty because um, I looked up the filmographies of both Rachel Weisz and uh, and Rachel McAdams. Not phenomenal. I mean, you can go through. They both worked a lot, you know, but a lot of TV, this, nothing particularly distinguished. I never would have thought that Rachel McAdams is an actress with a great lot of range or depth. I mean, and yet you managed to get really pretty terrific and very believable performances out of that. So 
what did you what what potion did you put into their, their, their coffee every morning? Well, well thank you for that. Uh, well, probably um, this. I mean, I operate from a place of admiration towards them. I knew that she's a great actress, mm-hmm. and um, and I just knew it, and I, I just knew that uh, the combination of uh, Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams was going to be electrical and unexpected and, and beautiful and strange and, and full of energy. But did you draw on their natural characteristics, try to push them into, I mean, like study them and say, I'm going to push you into your strengths? Or I have a way of working in which um, I'm really interested in the characters, of course. Mm-hmm. I write them or co-write them, so I'm very involved in the conception of the characters. But then when the actors become part of the equation, then I use characters as a device to get to them and to try to grasp something that belongs to that human being that is interpreting them. I'm interested in Rachel McAdams as a person. I, I like her energy. I like her face. I, you know, I, I, I want to film her. I want to see her cornered and, and see what she can bring. So I guess that could be the secret, you know, that I'm not too distracted by the character. I'm really obsessed uh, by the person. Yeah, it seems to me that you're also a director who probably listens a lot and pays attention and kind of takes things in as opposed to having a fixed point of view and saying, this is where we're going. I would like to think I am. (laughs) Because, you know, for me, a script is always map. It's never territory. It's always an indicator. Uh, But then... The territory is the shooting, and that's co-creation. So I love to incorporate their voices and their questions and their doubts and come out with a solution, sometimes collectively. Mm-hmm. And that has usually um, a greater depth and energy than something that can be you know, created just by one mind and heart. So you came from Chile, which is a small country, right? Has a, you can only make films that are small budgets, yeah. right? Because there isn't a lot of money, a lot of territory. Mm-hmm. And now you live in Berlin, yes, yeah, uh, making English language film, and now you're re- also remaking Gloria in, in with yeah. yeah with Julianne Moore. So this is a big shift in your career, mm-hmm. and obviously the Oscar and all of this success is making some of that possible. Yes, but what do you want to do? <laughs> I want to make films. I want to make films um, wherever I can and however I can. I I never thought of making films in English as a goal. As almost everything in my life, it happened organically. And I welcomed it because it felt right. You know, it felt the right moment. And that happened after Gloria, uh, not after the Oscar. Gloria was the film that opened many doors for me. And um, actually, I shot... A Fantastic Woman, Disobedience, and the remake of Gloria, uh, back-to-back. So that's why I will release three films in the USA <laughs> this year. Uh, but then I will take vacations. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about your compatriot, Pablo Larraín, uh, yeah. uh, his last two films, particularly mm-hmm. uh, Neruda, and then he got this chance to do Jackie, yes. which was a big theme, and which I thought he approached in a very intelligent way. Yeah, uh, It didn't quite work. So how do you use as an asset, going back to asset, the fact that you still have Chilean roots, that's where you grew up, that's where you learn how to make films, that's where you come from, and approach this 
global mm. American world market to your advantage. You know what I'm saying? I think I think right. it can be done, but you can also fall on the sword by overthinking it or yeah, yeah. You know? I know. I, I think I know what you mean. I mean, I'm a close friend with mm. with Pablo. Mm-hmm. I really really uh, love him very much, and 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 he's my producer as well. So we talk about this a lot. And I think when we started to make films, we were coming out of a process of uh, reconstruction of national cinema because during the dictatorship years in the 70s and 80s, national cinema in Chile almost died. So I belong to that generation that went back to the recently uh, reopened film schools. Um, So we come from a place of pure hunger, you know, and when we made our first films, they had no destination, no other purpose rather than making them. And then I think that's the secret, is uh, operating from that same place of uh, hunger and in terms of uh, artistic hunger and, and urgent hunger for cinema. You know, so that can be applicable to any language or territory. <laughs> You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stedek speaking with filmmaker Sebastian Lelio. Just came off winning the Oscar for Fantastic Women, and now you have a new film, Disobedience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, film contributor Milos Dalek will be back with us, and he will have his final dispatch from the Cannes International Film Festival. Also, we'll have Weekend Passport, and we'll hear about the North American premiere of a symphony honoring victims of a genocide. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes Store, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can click click subscribe at wbez.org slash worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered. Daniel Musisi curated our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.